Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Our guest today is Jason Brennan. He's the Robert J. and Elizabeth Flanagan Family Professor of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at the McDonough School of Business and Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University. Today we're talking about his new book, When All Else Fails, The Ethics of Resistance to State Injustice. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, Jay. Thanks for having me again. The thesis of this book is pretty simple. In the beginning, you write, you possess, you the reader, possess the same right of self-defense and the same right to defend others against government agents as you do against civilians. The moral principles governing self-defense against civilians and government agents, even agents who act by virtue of their appointed status and within the law, are the same. So this strikes me as so true as to border on axiomatic. Like you almost don't need any other discussion. So – Thank you for listening. There's been free thoughts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. we go. We're done. Yeah. Uh, but why write a whole book of this for something that's just like, well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the kind of people who uh, would be in the room right now are the kind of people to whom that seems like an obvious truth. Um, I think the you know, a motivation behind libertarian thinking is a sort of natural tendency to believe that human human beings are the same. They have the same moral rights, the same duties all over, no matter who they are, no matter which position they occupy in society. And that when we create a national border, that doesn't magically change things. When we create a government agency, that doesn't magically change things. But for most normal people, it does. Like we're weirdos. And for normal people, that does make a difference. Normal people think that um, – if a police officer is using excessive force against you, so if they're arresting you for uh, excessive speeding and they use too much force against you and they're like threatening your life, that's regrettable. Maybe that person should be punished, but you absolutely cannot resist or only in incredibly extreme circumstances could you resist. So they do think that there's a difference. Um, so this book is in a sense starting with the common sense idea of the right of self-defense and the right to defend others that most people have and then asking, is there any reason to make the rules more restrictive when it comes to government agents? And I argue at the end there isn't. I think most people would probably agree Nazis resisting the Nazis or a virtuous act, right? But that is maybe because Nazi government was seen as illegitimate. So does it matter what our, what our perception of the legitimacy of the regime itself is that, that – totalitarian dictatorships or coups or whatever, you know, banana republic, something like this, you can resist them because they're, they're really just thugs, but not in America. In America, we have a constitution and we ratified it and we live under a set of laws. Yeah. They think that the type of regime they're under makes a difference. So most people leave, like I, I actually, one of the things that inspired this was a quotation by Andrew Altman and uh, Kit Wellman um, where they said, surely it would have been okay for someone to assassinate Stalin in the 1930s. And I read that and I immediately thought, okay, well, that's true of Stalin. Would it be true of, say, Andrew Jackson during the Trail of Tears? You know, when we have the genocidal forced relocation of Native Americans, could you could you just show up and kill the army as they're like shoot the army as they're doing that? If you have a person about to uh, you know, engage in some sort of horrible injustice with regard to war, can you use violence against them? If it were during World War II, if you could show up and free people from a Japanese internment camp at the expense of killing some American soldiers, is that okay? And people do tend to think the fact that the regime might overall be legitimate and overall be democratic somehow immunizes their agents in a way that non-democratic regimes are not immunized. Is that – you're saying and that's not true at all. I mean I is, is, the, is, a, yeah. is a totalitarian less legitimate than a democracy? 
Well, I mean, I, even as a person who down in my heart, uh, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to anarchism. I think it's a good research project and that anarchy works better than people think. As a person who thinks that governments are kind of by nature very questionable, even, even with those sort of anarchist sympathies, I'd still say, sure, uh, your typical democratic country is more legitimate than an authoritarian Nazi or fascist regime. Like there are degrees of badness and certainly that's much worse than what we have. Looking back, so these these questions about would it be okay to assassinate this person? Would it be okay to stop this thing? Are all are all backwards looking? Like, would it be okay to have killed Stalin? Yes. Should you go back in time and kill Hitler? Yes. Because we for, know what happened. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but is is that a part of it? Like, you could look back and say, well, you know, Andrew Jackson did these terrible things, and so we we know in retrospect that he was really bad, and so it would be it would be okay because we kind of know the totality of it, but. But I wonder how much that that thinking changes kind of on the ground that that part of the problem is when you're there in the moment, you don't – A, you don't know the full scope of it but B, you don't have kind of the the backward looking like we can see that this was really evil all along. Yeah. Well, if anything, I end up saying the book, it's actually less obvious that you can kill Stalin than it is that you could kill Andrew Jackson uh, because – when you kill a murderous dictator of a of a totalitarian regime, the response from the regime is often incredibly horrible, a massive terror scare. So someone, Fanny Kaplan tried to kill uh, John, uh, not John Lennon, the other Lennon, <laughs> the, the, the more the more evil Lennon, uh, tried <laughs> to kill Vladimir Ilya Lenin. Trulianov, yes. Yeah, sorry, I was listening to Beatles over here. Uh, tried to kill Vladimir Lenin and um, uh, his result, his re he, she failed and then his response was to engage in a massive terror purge and hurt lots and lots of people. Um, empirically speaking, uh, assassination in democratic governments does not lead to that kind of backlash and that kind of retaliation. But there's an important question here about uncertainty uh, because in the heat of the moment when these situations are taking place, you don't have all the facts. You don't know what the consequences are and you're also often uncertain about exactly what is occurring. But the interesting thing is that if you look at English common law, the common law of self-defense that's developed over thousands – like oh, not thousands but of over a thousand years of testing people's moral intuition and you take people's common sense views about self-defense and defense against others in civilian cases, there's already stuff about um, uncertainty that's built in. So a case that I like to use from uh, a law book, you probably had to study this in law school. I had to look it up for this – for writing this. There's this case where um, one thug is kind of pushing around another person, his victim, and the victim is scared for his life and the thug reaches into his pocket. And at that point, the victim is armed and he pulls out a gun and shoots the thug. Turns out the thug was not reaching for a gun or a weapon. He was reaching for a pack of cigarettes. This goes to court and the court says, nope, that's justifiable self-defense because it was reasonable for you. In fact, reasonable is too strict of a standard here, but it was justifiable for you to believe that you were in danger of imminent harm, that he was reaching for a weapon and the uncertainty, the danger of the uncertainty should fall upon the perpetrator. The person who's initiating the danger is the person who has to bear the consequences and the costs and the risks. So that's how common sense moral thinking works. Um, I don't think there's going to be an exception for government agents when they're acting badly too. So by this idea, you're Let's say you were getting hassled by the cops and they were being extremely violent towards you and you were worried that they might shoot you. And so the, the cop goes to grab something from his belt and you think that he's grabbing his gun and, and you shoot him. Uh, is that justifiable self-defense then? Is it an analogous situation? Yeah. I mean if they've been at the point of really beating the crap out of you um, and you think that you are reasonably in fear of your life and they do something like that where they think – you're like it's reasonable for you to think this guy might be trying to shoot me or kill me right now. 
then yeah, I think it's justifiable self-defense. Now, when I say that would be justified, keep in mind, the law is not going to agree. The law has now carved up a number of exceptions for, as far as the law goes, yes, government agents have special immunity against self-defense. If you do this, they will send a SWAT team to kill you. Uh, it's a very, it's very imprudent for you to do it. So many of these recommendations are, we're talking about, is it morally wrong to do so? And I'm like, no, you don't owe it to the cop. Um, you have the right, the moral right to engage in this, but it might often be prudent not to. So just as an analogy to, to sort of see that, imagine that it's back in high school and I'm just a terrible bully and I come up to you and I start picking on you and I'm like, I'm going to beat you up and take your lunch money. And you start responding and like defending yourself. And then I make a credible threat and I say, Trevor, if you defend yourself against me, then I'm going to like uh, beat up six more people. Right. So therefore you can't defend yourself. Or if you say, oh, if you defend yourself against me right now, then I'm going to come back in an hour and with a baseball bat and beat the crap out of you. Well, in light of those credible threats, it might be imprudent and rational for you not to defend yourself, but it's not clear it changes the moral calculus. It would be weird for you to say, well, I owe it to him not to beat him up because, or not to fight back because he's so good at retaliating. I'm going to take a step back because I feel we've kind of jumped ahead a bit in, We're in the conversation. We're police officers. <laughs> yes, let's no, go back a little bit. Um, so your, your thesis is that when when moral principles would say it's okay to engage in self-defense or defense of others against civilians, it's also okay in similar circumstances to do it against or to agents of the state. Um, what are these moral principles? Yeah. So the chapter two is all about this and um, I just kind of give a sketch of like what the common sense view is of self-defense. Um, there, there are details of this theory that people dispute, but the broad theory pretty much everyone accepts. If you're not a radical pacifist, this is what view you probably have. It's permissible for a defender to defend himself or others against an assailant, an attacker, when the assailant or the attacker is about to commit severe harm or severely violate someone's rights or severely hurt them and uh, – Using some sort of defensive action such as lying, destruction of property uh, or violent self-defense is necessary to stop the person from doing that. And then the questions are things like, well, how, how much justification do you have to have for your belief? What exactly counts as severe enough harm? What counts as the proportional response? And just how imminent does the harm have to be? And people will debate, you know, there's some things clearly on either side of those lines. Like if, if I tell you right now, Aaron, that I'm going to like, you know, plick your nose, it wouldn't make sense for you to like chop off my hand to stop me. Like that's disproportionate. Um, so that's an easy case on one side. If I said, I'm going to chop off your head, it wouldn't make sense for you to kill me to stop me. That's on the other side. There's, there's hard cases in the middle, but there's easy cases on both sides. And then you bring in the moral parity thesis, which, which is, does anything about being in the government change this, correct? Yeah, that's right. So I say like, there's, there's two basic positions on this. The special immunity thesis says that the principles that govern the right of self-defense or the right to defend others against government injustice are much more tightly constrained than they are when it comes to defending yourself against civilians. The moral parity thesis says that they're the same principles. In fact, strictly speaking, I write the moral parity thesis in a way that allows that maybe you have actually weaker principles when it comes to government agents, but I just don't explore that. Um, so one in the same, like do we, it's the same principles for both or are there special restrictions? Do government agents enjoy what I call special immunity against defensive action? So you do this though within the framework of what you call common sense morality. So you're kind of appealing to people's pre-existing understanding slash intuitions. But most people um, – so maybe the people who would not 
think that your claim, your central thesis was obviously true. Most of them have a basic understanding or an intuition that that in fact there is something different yeah. about the government. And so how do you how do you argue against that while drawing upon common sense morality? Yeah, I'm trying to do with with basically every book I write, honestly, I'm trying to do a using common sense moral principles, what's good about common sense to defeat what's bad about common sense. So common sense moral principles about self-defense seem right. And then most people also make exceptions for government agents. And what I'm trying to do in this book is show them that they can't consistently maintain that. Something's got to go. And this is pretty common with a lot of philosophy. You take like Say Robert knows like an anarchy state and utopia gives us a, an argument for why you shouldn't eat meat. And his argument is based upon, hey, you, the reader, think this. Here's a bunch of principles you already accept. Here's some examples. And once you have those judgments and these examples, it's unclear why you can justify continuing to eat meat. So he's undermining the common sense view that it's okay to eat meat using other common sense principles people accept, showing there's an inconsistency. And the only way to resolve it perhaps is to jettison the view it's okay to eat meat. I'm doing something like that with this. Uh, you, the reader, think this theory of, of self-defense. You also make an exception for government agents. So what I want to do is very carefully over a number of chapters, go through all the possible things that might explain why there would be a difference and then show that those don't work. A, a lot of this seems to hinge on notions of justice. So we could kind of reframe it as like when someone is behaving in a way that is sufficiently unjust that – it's permissible to use force to stop them, then it doesn't matter who that person is. But isn't it we, – we tend to think of like government as one of the roles that government plays and, and the political process that informs government is to map out the contours, the rules of justice. And so if we have through this mechanism that we kind of decide what is just as opposed to just you, Professor Jason Brennan, telling us what your notions of justice are. Aren't we kind of bound by those as opposed to just you know these looking at inconsistencies or intuitions? Yeah, um, I guess I I think there is a role for government in deciding some aspects of justice because there are things like you know we have a rule that you shouldn't exercise reckless you should be careful and not reckless when you're driving but in order to make that rule effective we have to create an artificially bright red line and say we're going to define that as 65 miles per hour on this road and there's something to be said for making some principles of justice or some rules of social life um, artificially um, precise and government plays that role. So we might say things like at some point you forfeit your right to your property when you haven't used it. How long does that take? We're just going to say 30 years and maybe certain political mechanisms are good for coming up with a way to settle that. But what I reject is uh, voluntism about voluntarism about the content of morality. I don't think that governments through any kind of deliberative process can simply decide what our rights are and what they aren't, that there's a core of what we owe to one another and what rights we have against one another um, and what counts as a good or bad state of affairs that's not bound up by political fiat. And also I, I reject that when it comes to individuals. So I'm not saying you, the individual, can exercise the right of self-defense whenever someone else commits what you consider an injustice. Like In the same way that I don't think the French are gods who can create morality from thin air, I don't think you are either. So rather I'm saying when there's a violation of the rights that people in fact have, that's when you can do it. And in a sense, that's even how the common sense moral principle of, of uh, self-defense works. It's, it's, there is a thing that counts as harm. And if you're 
if I'm causing that kind of harm to you, then you can defend yourself. It's not whether you regard it as harm. So I can't just be like, I really, I really find it harmful when like Henry Farrell at Crooked Timber takes yet another swipe at me. Like he seems to do all the time online <laughs> for some reason. I don't know what his problem is. Like, so I'm just going to go like, you know, beat him up or something. It's like, I don't get to decide that that counts as a harm. There's a question of like objective harm here. And I think at the end of the day, moral, moral theory is going to have to work that way. If it's just whatever we decide, then morality is basically bullshit and we should give it up. So one of the reasons people might say you shouldn't uh, go after the cop in the situation we've been talking about is because in the difference between some random guy beating someone and then a cop beating someone is that the random guy is not a member of an organization that has dispute resolution mechanisms and ways of, of dealing with that issue uh, in a way that we have come to accept in the Western world. You, you want due process. You want someone to say – to defend themselves and here's the facts are online. The police are that organization. Now, as our colleagues Clark Neely and Jay Schweikart write about extensively, it's very hard to discipline a cop uh, and we have qualified immunity and all this stuff. But let's imagine that we had a good functioning system of dealing with bad apples in the government. How does that change this this calculation of yours that you're supposed to use this alternate dispute resolution mechanism and not something violent or or lying or some sort of assault or something like that? Yeah, that's right. But I don't I don't necessarily think it takes a difference between uh, government and non government agents, except for maybe a, a factual difference that might change. So self-defense is governed by a necessity proviso. You're not allowed to use a defense, a violent defensive action when a non-violent defensive action is equally effective. And you're not allowed to use a, a non-violent defensive action when some sort of peaceful resolution mechanism is as effective, right? That's, that's the basic idea. And that's true of civilians. Um, so I think that's also true of government agents. And there's just a question of like whether these other things are there. And there are things about, um, uh, how to put it? Um, but th th at the same time, we have to think about the difference between fixing a, a policy versus stopping an immediate injustice. So suppose, uh, you know, a person like at a party in a college party, some frat boy tries to rape some, some undergrad, like, uh, if, if that undergrad were to defend herself against him, she's not trying to end the patriarchy. She's not trying to end the fraternity culture. She's not trying to end rape culture. She's trying to stop herself from being raped then. And there might very well be like various kinds of legal and extra legal mechanisms that she can use to like retaliate against this guy or punish him or receive compensation from him afterwards. But we wouldn't say to her, no, no, just allow yourself to be raped and then afterward go to like the campus police and go to like the campus administrators and have him punished. We would say, no, it's, you're allowed to use violence to stop him from doing it now, even though that's not the same thing as stopping the overall pattern of abuse. I think it's the same thing with cops. If a cop is or, – or any other government agent, if a government agent is doing something immoral right now that's going to hurt you, violate your rights or violate someone else's rights – you acting to stop them is about stopping that immediate injustice. It's not about trying to fix the problem, the bigger problem, the fact that this keeps happening. So you said that you are kind of anarchism sympathetic, <laughs> yeah. but not but not an anarchist. But doesn't this theory of taken seriously commit you to anarchism in the sense that so every law as we've talked about a fair amount on free thoughts, every Michael, law is, Michael Huber came on free thoughts, is, is so. ultimately backed by the threat of force or the application of force, um, and it's and that threat of force or application of force is something that we say the the people involved in the enforcement of that law get to do. But like, so I can't I can't go around enforcing even just laws, right? Like, I can't if I see you violating a law that we generally agree is just, I can't beat you up or lock you in a cage because we've said 
the state is the ones that gets to do that. But what distinguishes it? Like what what distinguishes that application of violence from my application of violence? And if if we have to treat the perpetrators of the violence the same, then it seems like we kind of have to jettison I, we either have to jettison enforcement of law or we have to just basically say it's always okay for anyone to resist the enforcement of any law. I think it's reasonable to have an anti-vigilante principle that says something like when it comes to enforcing the rules and enforcing people's rights, we should have a presumed deference to the people who are most effective in doing that. And often that's going to mean allowing the police to sort of stop things. So if you see someone being mugged and the police are like, oh, no, no, we're going to jump in and stop that person from being mugged. You should let the police do it. Now, if you were, say, Batman or Superman, I would think the police should actually defer to you and let you do it. <laughs> um, but if you're a normal person who doesn't have superpowers, then I guess Batman doesn't either. But you're not like awesome like Batman. You should let the police do it. So there is a reason to defer to the more effective agent when it comes to fixing problems. And that's true not just of um, – that's not not just with regards to say like enforcing rights, but you know if if I'm at uh, Walmart or something and like someone starts choking and I'm like, don't worry everyone, I'm a doctor, and someone says, yeah, but I'm a medical doctor, I'm going to help the person. Uh, <laughs> doctor I should, of philosophy, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm a real doctor. He's a medical doctor. I defer to the medical doctor because they have the greater ability to deal with it. So deference in that case, I think, is not inherently a problem. And now on the other hand, if the police are the ones mugging you, I think that makes a difference. And if the police say they're not going to stop the mugging, that makes a difference too. Um, so yeah, so this this book does not require an anarchist position. In fact, I, I, without getting maybe too much into the details of it, I, I argue in the, I think chapter three of the book that I could grant the position that governments have the have the moral permission to do anything they want and it would still be compatible with the conclusion of this book. Because there's a an ambiguity between two special powers that governments tend to we people believe governments have. I think powers are legitimacy and authority. Humor uses slightly different words than that. Um, so legitimacy is supposed to be the permissibility of government of creating rules and using various kinds of violent enforcement mechanisms to to make people comply with the rules. That's what uh, that is what legitimacy is. Legitimacy in general is like permissibility of using violence to do something. Um, authority is a special moral power that people think governments have where when they create a rule, you as a citizen or as a, or some – maybe not just citizens, maybe a resident or others acquire a moral obligation to follow that rule because the government made it the rule. So authority would be um, – like if I say you guys don't murder anyone – you shouldn't murder anyone, but you don't have to murder someone because I said so. You just have a pre-existing obligation. When the US government says, don't drive more than 65 miles an hour on this road, people think you acquire an obligation not to do that because they set that. If they'd said 66, it would have been 66. If they said 40, it would be 40. So the thing that's actually of interest here is not legitimacy. Legitimacy is the power that establishes whether we should have a government or not. Is it permissible for this thing to exist? Is it permissible to create rules and enforce them? Authority is the thing that binds you as a citizen or a resident that makes you have to comply with the law. And one – as far as I can tell reading the literature on um, authority and legitimacy right now, it's not really clear there's any kind of – philosophers are kind of puzzled whether there's any real duty to obey the law per se, but most of them think that governments are legitimate. If that sounds puzzling, if you think, well, how could a government be legitimate but not authoritative? Imagine like a uh, a boxing match. You and I decide to have a boxing match. Um, in that thing, we both have permission to punch each other, but we don't have authority to punch each other, meaning that when I try to punch you, you're allowed to resist or duck out of the way and vice versa. So I'm not saying that I, I'm even sticking to the position that governments lack authority. Maybe they do have authority and like when they when they require you to go to jury duty, you have to go and they say pay your taxes at least up until a certain point, you have to pay them. Maybe you should comply with certain regulations. But 
what the person who believes in government authority has to do, the burden that they have and which no one has discharged in the past 2,500 years is establish that governments don't simply have the, have the authority to make you pay taxes, to make you drive a certain limit, to maybe comply with certain reasonable regulations, but they have specifically the authority to commit severe injustice, the very injustice that were a, a civilian to do it, you would think it's permissible to defend yourself. And no one has even attempted to defend that. In going off of Aaron's question <clears throat> with uh, anarchy, which you could push it to anarchy and, and I understand your answer, but it, it seems that you could resist a bunch of things that the government does under this rule. So I don't know how, how much of my taxes <clears throat> uh, contribute to bombs that are killing kids in Yemen. Mm -hmm. you know, but I mean, let's say they itemized my tax receipt, which would be great. You know, here's $275. This is going to bombs killing, you know, being given, given to the Saudi government and killing kids. Uh, extreme injustice. Uh, if someone came to me with a gun and said, give me $275, I'm going to go kill a kid in Yemen, I should be able to resist that violently. So why can't I just resist paying my taxes? Not not the situation with the police officer in a Rodney King type of situation, but just the, the taxes to fund a war. Yeah. And if we had tax collectors like we did in the old days and we res you know, they came to your door like in the colonies, well, could I resist that guy forcefully? Yeah, that's a real puzzle because <sighs> if – I mean, to make this like especially puzzling, you have to imagine that the com guy's coming to say, all right, um, I'm going to take $200 from you and 100 is going towards something which you actually ought to contribute to. Like let's say you're bound to contribute, you know, and then the other 100 is going towards enforcing slavery or some other injustice. Can you resist him or are you allowed to like resist him and say, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that I pay my $100 to the good thing but not – yeah, I think in that situation, like your, you would have the permission. It would be permissible, though imprudent, uh, to resist paying um, for those taxes. And you know, if you know uh, Thoreau's uh, civil disobedience book, that's why he was in jail. He said, "I'm not paying for the Mexican-American War. I'm not paying to uh, enforce slavery in the South." And they said, "Yeah, you are," and they threw him in jail. But I think he was right. So tax tax evasion of a if you could do targeted tax evasion where you somehow manage to pay only the taxes that go towards the good things and you don't pay for any of the government evil, then that would that's permissible in my view. But then you have this problem that everyone's going to be doing it, and they all have their own view of what's evil, yeah, or not. Uh, and th then we have a chaos that results from this. And well, I, you know, there's this kind of claim about this thesis where, you know, I'm saying it's permissible to do this under certain circumstances. I'm not thereby saying it's permissible for you to do it when you believe you're in those circumstances. I'm saying it's permissible to do it when you are, in fact, in those circumstances. Every moral theory has that, right? It's like you it, it, common sense moral thinking is the same way. This is permissible when you're in this situation. It's not permissible when you're not in this situation. And then there's a problem of real people actually living up to that and people make a mistake. It's true of football. It's true of guitar. It's true of anything that has any normativity of it. You know, you might th say something like, well, when you're in this situation, you really ought to like tuck and roll and like, or you might have to slide rather than like take the tackle and people will misapply that rule because they, they're mistaken about the situation. So there's a danger to that. And, um, for that reason, I, I in the book I talk about such things about how to be cautious about this, how to avoid over applying it, how to avoid to like running into these mistakes. At the same time, um, I, I honestly think the other position is much more dangerous 
So I think the, the view that other people are pushing is no, defer to government. And what we know about human psychology is that people are deferential cowards who will kill another person, electrocute them to death because a person in a white lab coat told them to do so. We know that most people, if a, per, if a guard comes to them and says, we need you to lock up these Japanese people and we need you to uh, exterminate this Native American tribe and we need you to gas these Jews, their reaction is absolutely and they'll do it. Right? And they might feel bad, a bit bad about it and have some nightmares later, but they do it. So I think if anything, people are like, oh, this thesis is really dangerous. You can't spread that. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Given human history and given the predilection towards conformity that we know about human beings, the other view that says you should defer to government agents is incredibly dangerous and people should really stop advertising that position. But doesn't that conformity potentially push us in too far in the opposite direction in that um, – if so things – there, you can point to these instances of people following orders that were catastrophic and so killing the Jews or you know, dropping the bombs on the children or whatever else that we would think like it would be better had they resisted. But by and large, like you look around the US, you know, that we are as a people very deferential to authority um, and some people seem to be very, very deferential to the point where even if you say anything kind of mean about authority, you're you know anti-American or whatever else. Um, but we seem to be doing like okay. There are instances of brutality. There are instances of people doing, but on the whole, the government seems to treat us reasonably okay. Um, and if if you're right, and people so people operationalize your your thesis, and we develop a culture of the conformity would lead to a culture of let's all just kind of resist when we think it violates these moral principles when it does in fact violate the moral principles. when it but but i mean when it does and people can only operate on when they think it does they can't they can't actually operate on when it does cuz those kind of are indistinguishable from their minds but um that that a society where everyone was resisting all the time would be potentially non-functional in a much worse way than like our generally happy deferential to authority world. I mean maybe that's an empirical question like what would happen as a result. I mean I suspect if I if I did cuz you, what you're almost imagining asking me to imagine is something like I wave a ma my magic wand and all of the citizens suddenly accept the thesis of this book and act in accordance with it or what they think is in accordance with it and then the government agents continuing act exactly the way that they have and they don't believe this. Because if we really were to imagine everyone believing this and we'd have a lot of like, well, rather than you having to resist the police officer for um, him trying to throw you in jail for marijuana, he just doesn't throw you. He just lets you go because he knows it's a bad law. He doesn't enforce the law. So in a sense, universalizing this thesis, I think, leads to not more resistance to state injustice, but less state injustice for there to resist in the first place. And really, the second half of the book is all about Okay, maybe generally citizens don't have an obligation to defer to government agents, but what if you are a government agent? Do you have an obligation to to go along with injustice because you've accepted a certain role? And I think the answer for that is also no. Um, Did Kim Davis act legitimately? Did she was the one who refused to issue marriage licenses on her religious convictions as a county clerk, and I think in Kentucky. Um, that that was she would would sit here and say my common sense morality is that homosexuality is a sin and 
presume she would say this. Yeah. And gay marriage is, is an abomination. And I don't, the state can't, the Supreme Court can't make me do this. I mean, she made a mistake because it's not, in fact, an abomination. And that's just, that's the problem with all moral principles, every set of rules that people will misapply them. Um, it doesn't mean the principles are wrong. It's just a problem with like the people misapplying them. This is a thing about, let's say, utilitarian philosophy. I'm not a utilitarian, though I think there's something to it. They'll say like, you know, what makes actions right or wrong is that it produces the best possible consequences. And then someone will say, yeah, but people are really bad at figuring out what the consequences are. And they're like, yes, there's a thing, there's a distinction between the moral theory and what we call a decision procedure. A moral theory is its job is to identify what in fact makes things right or wrong. A decision procedure is a thing that you use in the heat of the moment that helps you track the truth as determined by that moral theory. Um, and so decision procedures and theories are often very different. And a good example of this would be uh, how baseball works. If you're an outfielder and you're trying to catch a fly ball, the correct theory of where the fly ball will land is a theory from physics about vectors and about initial, um, you know, the initial acceleration of the ball and the angle at which it's hit and the air temperature and so on. And those physics equations combined will tell you where the ball lands. But no one would ever be able to catch a ball, even like someone who's very athletic and a mathematical genius by applying those physics equations on the ground. They'll never catch it. So the thing that you use on the ground is something that um, is dependent upon your psychology and your abilities that helps you track the truth. And so that's personalized. And for most people, it's this thing called the gaze heuristic, which is um, you keep your eye on the ball and you keep your head at a certain angle towards the ball and you move your body in such a way that you never change the angle of your head. And if you do that, you'll catch the ball. So the decision procedure is different from the actual truth. So similarly with this, given you, the listener, your particular psychological flaws and biases and tics and weirdness and what's good about you too, then the decision procedure you ought to operate by is different from maybe mine, different from Trevor's and so on. Um, and so it might be that some people, uh, their decision procedure will tell them to be more conformist because they're so overly inclined to like make the bad choices. And some people will tell them to rely upon their common sense judgment. So that's a problem, but it's, it's individuated. So the problem with Kate Davis is she's acting on her into, on her considered moral judgments, but her considered moral judgments are wrong. And that's also true of self-defense. You know, imagine you, I come across, I'm walking down the street and I'm Kim Davis and I see a gay couple kissing and I'm like, my considered conviction is that they're violating the word of God. So I'm going to punch them both in the head. Well, you know, that's her considered view, but it's wrong. And we wouldn't say that counts as like defense of others. We wouldn't say that counts as self-defense. We wouldn't say that that's right. So any moral principle people can misapply. When you talk about the judges and the justice system, convictions uh, of different laws, it seems that if we go down to one of the core rules of the state, which is dispute resolution. And this is Locke's idea that you need to have a third party to because you're you're biased to give for yourself, right? You need a third party to resolve disputes and that kind of becomes the state. One of the hallmarks of a justice system, a well functioning one, is that the loser abides by the result. Whatever it is, because you know, that's how you diminish violence. Like you, you had your day in court, or even if you use some crazy, you know, method reading tea leaves to figure out who is guilty. If both parties agree that this is the just way of resolving their dispute, and the loser's like, "Well, I guess I lost," and then does not commit violence or or takes the punishment. Uh, if you're allowed to resist because you got convicted of of some wrongdoing that you think, you know, common sense principles like smoking marijuana. Uh, how much does that undermine the justice system over – like eventually undermine the entire method of dispute resolution between you and the state on these? And then – which is a really 
positive development. A well-functioning justice system is a really positive development for a society. Man, I'm glad you asked that question. But I think my, my position on it, I think, is going to be something probably similar to what I expect you think about the inaptness of the metaphor in the first place. So when I think about the brilliance of the English common law system, I think of it as my neighbor and I disagree about some rule about like the boundaries of our property and how to apply it. And we both agree that it's better to find some sort of impartial resolution than to come to blows. And we both voluntarily go to a roaming judge and say, hear our case. And he comes up with something that he thinks we both can live with. And at the end of the day, we might recognize, well, you know, maybe I think he got the numbers a little bit wrong. He says, you have to pay me a thousand pounds and really it should be 1200, but it's better to just go with a thousand and defer to that than to insist on fighting for the extra 200. And we genuinely agreed to use that. Like that's how that system evolved. And it was a very good mechanism for creating law. And it's a genuine voluntary use of third party resolution that makes sense to defer to. When you're talking about laws about say criminalizing marijuana, I think the whole, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe the democratic process to lead to that at all as being anything like this kind of consensual use of third party, um, uh, third party arbitration. I would see it as simply, I'm born in a certain area. I don't have the right to live anywhere else. And a bunch of people are going to impose their view of like more right and wrong upon me. And when they get it wrong, they don't get to like, when they make a mistake and impose the wrong things upon me, they don't get to ruin my life over it. Um, but the, but they pass the law. They, through legitimate processes, you know they. I mean, at least in terms of voting, uh, you had a trial that was legitimate. That was a due process trial. Uh, the jury had the opportunity to nullify. Let's say, let's say they were even informed that they could nullify, and they didn't. Um, maybe because they believe you have to get a jury who is way for criminalization of marijuana. And so then at the end, you're like, okay, like I guess I'll go to jail now. Now. In in terms of you know I'm just going to break out or I'm going to I'm going to you know or, or just being like I had you know I had, I had a fair trial and a fair process accepting my punishment in that way uh, don't we need people to do that on some level Socrates drinking the hemlock exactly yeah don't we need people to do that no I don't think we do um, I can see why people would defer but I first of all I don't think the democratic process is this like. A legitimate process that has a tendency to create good law, for, but we can we can get we, into we already had that we already had that discussion. We'll, we'll that discussion. Put that episode up in the show notes. Uh, but let's say we had like a trial, and let's say that during the trial they like it's for a thing if it's for the kind of thing that just shouldn't be a crime in the first place, and they honestly believe it, then it's like, look, they're not necessarily awful people for believing that, but we don't get to hurt they don't get to hurt me just because they made a mistake. Like that's that's on them. Um, but let's say it's the kind of thing that should in fact be a crime. Like they believe that I'm a murderer. And murder should be a crime. And then they have the trial. And during the trial, they present the evidence fairly. And it just turns out through incredible bad luck. We've all seen like movies like this. The evidence overwhelmingly points to me being guilty. But I'm not. I didn't actually do it. But it's the kind of thing that should be punished. And it's reasonable for them to think that I was guilty. In fact, it's like oh, it's just, they'd be unjustified in thinking I'm not guilty because the evidence is so strong. It just turns out I was like, it's wrong. So then they throw me in jail. In that situation, I would regard um, the people who have put me in jail, the, the guards uh, holding me, as what we would call um, innocent aggressors in philosophy. Innocent aggressors are people who, they're w when they're acting, they haven't, in a sense, done anything morally wrong. They sincerely and justifiably believe that they're defending themselves against you. They justifiably think that you're, uh, it's right to use violence against you, but they're mistaken. And then the norms about that are a little bit more complicated because you have to take their welfare into account, not just your own. You don't treat them the same way that you treat perpetrators of injustice. Um, and that and that's a, and that's that's from just war theory, like in general. Like there's a you treat uh, innocent aggressors differently from genuine aggressors. So in that case, you might think about um, 
well, if it turns out the only way I can free myself is by killing 15 cops and they're all innocent aggressors, then maybe you should just stay there because their welfare counts too. If the way that you can get out is by punching one cop once and you can run away and he'll be fine, then maybe you should break free. But that's because they're innocent in this case. Now, if they're if they're like, no, no, you're Alan Turing and we're going to chemically castrate you because we just all believe that homosexuality is an abomination, then Alan Turing should be like, go out guns blazing. I mean, morally speaking, he can go out guns blazing. Uh, like no one should do that to him. Um, prudentially, it would be a bad idea to do it, but morally, he's okay. So, it seems like we can think of one of the roles that government agents play in this kind of enforcement thing as like a, you know, the buck stops here in terms of judgment, because otherwise we might we might imagine a situation where, say, I see um, some cops beating up a guy, and I rush in to defend him because in my considered judgment, it looks like they are behaving in a radically unjust way towards him. So I have a right to defend him. So I do that. But then someone sees me defending against those cops. Like attack, so now I'm attacking cops. And so they're like, well, here's a guy who's aggressing against cops. I'm going to go and defend the cops. And we can just like keep going because all of us are acting on information that none of the rest of them have or even so that the example of you know you see the person fighting against the cops and it's because he was convicted of murder and all of the evidence made it look like he was guilty but he knows that he was not guilty but no one else can possibly know that i mean almost by definition because all of the evidence makes it look like he's guilty and so you end up with this like infinite regress of people defending people based on their considered judgment that's the best they can do in the situation. Whereas if we have – we say like, look, we just defer to the we, – we need someone who's like, no, their judgment kind of trumps and sometimes it goes wrong. Um, sometimes they make the wrong choice or whatever but that's what, that's what stops this kind of endless cycle of defense of others. Yeah. So two things about that. One is I really do think there's reasons – so there's like epistemic versus moral authority. Moral authority is – when I say you have to do something or if I make a claim I'm going to do something, you have to let me do it because I have power over you. Uh, epistemic authority would be um, the idea that like, well, this person might know better and I should defer to them because if they're doing something, they probably know better. Like if I knew – if I know that like, Trevor, you just always get things right. When it comes to morality, you always get the right answer and we're walking down the street and you point to someone and say, you need to kill that person. Well, by hypothesis, I'm like, I have no idea why I should, but I know that since you always get things right, I really do should. So I should defer to you because you know better. Not because you're – it doesn't become right because you said so, but just somehow you track the truth. So sometimes with cops, it's like if I walk across the street and I see two cops beating up somebody and then I go on another street and I see two people in like black trench coats beating up somebody – it's rational for me to think those are different situations. Probably the person being beamed up the cops is more likely to have it coming than the other person because even in the US where cops are un incredibly violent compared to everywhere else, uh, they're still overall pretty good and they're less likely to do that. But that – so that said um, – so we have to take into account questions about when should I defer given the information I have, not necessarily that they have more moral authority but this, the question of like, well, what are they doing? Would they Do they know better than I do? That said, I think the regress problem you're talking about is exists with civilian injustice. In fact, when you're talking about that, I thought of like a situation back in like sixth grade. So I have like a – I think a 23 to 1 record when it comes to fistfights, um, <laughs> right? Uh, and, I, and I don't remember the – I don't remember most of the kids that I had fights with in middle school except for the one – that guy who won. Uh, so there's this kid named Eric. He was – to my self-defense, I think I was 11 and he was like 14 or almost 15. He's, he'd been like held back in school a couple of years. He's really big. I'd like a rematch now. I think I could take him now. Um, <laughs> But uh, you know, he like 
one day I like bumped into him and he's like, I'm going to kick your ass at the bus stop. Like, and he, and he did, uh, and I fought back hard, but he was winning. And then like my brother jumped in and grabbed him to like stop him. And then as this happens, like we're like pushing him off. The guy in the house nearby saw that and he sees it and he sees two people attacking one guy. So he comes running out and like grabs Matt and me off of him because he, <laughs> so it's the same regress problem. Like, and I'm like, what's going on there? Look, it was right for me to defend myself against Eric. And it was also permissible for that guy to defend Eric against the two of us because given the information he had in the heat of the moment, that was his best judgment about what to do. And if it and if he kept holding me back and Eric kept punching me, it'd be reasonable for me to like punch that guy in the face to stop Eric from punching me. That kind of thing happens. That's that's too bad. But at the end of the day, the basic principle has to be like the person who is perpetrating the injustice is the one that the risks and costs of injustice should fall upon as much as possible. So yes, there are going to be cases where, um, uh, you know, if, if Obama says I'm going to bomb this country tomorrow, uh, or if you know, I would say Obama because I I wouldn't trust Trump at all. But like <laughs> someone, someone like Obama who I thought was better, uh, though you know he did a lot of mass murder that wasn't justified, but. If Obama says he's going to bomb a country tomorrow, I'm not going to treat that the same way as if you say you're going to bomb the country. I have more reason to think that Obama would be making – have information that I don't have which would give me reason to defer to him. But beyond that, there's no – I don't think there's any real difference. Aaron, what's your fistfight record, Aaron? I've never been in a fist fight. We can change that. <laughs> we have fight clubs over the yeah. app. Uh, I think right. I'm two and we two. We have space in this room. Um, yeah, I think I'm two and two in my, in my fist fight record. <clears throat> um, Snowden. Edward Snowden. A lot of criticism. Some people think he's a hero. Some people think not. Um, but also the idea of someone in that situation, not all the way at the top, uh, but privy to a lot of information, leaking a bunch of stuff, but maybe not knowing everything about this, right? Or or having a lower level army officer not know the whole plan. Uh, and so, but still use your common sense, moral judgment. This is wrong. You know, this is going to happen. Uh, is it okay for people in those situations to perform seemingly immoral actions to stop or to perform a violent action or a lying or some sort of thing like Snowden did to stop a seemingly immoral action. Yeah. I mean, again, you can make mistakes with that because there could be a case where if only you had more information, you would see why it's justified. Um, and you have to have, make a judgment about how likely is it that the information you have is misleading. And that's true of common sense morality when it comes to civilians. It doesn't change if you're working as a whistleblower at IBM. Right, it's the same thing. Um, I just I want to say whatever your whatever your view is, take that same exact situation and make it like Dow Chemicals. And whatever your view about self-defense is there, I want to say treat the government the same. The only difference comes down to the question of the reliability of the government. I maybe trust Dow Chemicals a little bit more than I trust the US government, but so it goes. But Dow Chemical doesn't – it has one thing it does. It doesn't have the responsibilities of the US government, uh, especially on the international stage. And one of the criticisms of Snowden was that he did leak the sort of secret information about some of our agents overseas and some of the broader strategic goals that we were pursuing. And that, of course, you can imagine another hypothetical leaker who could seriously undermine beneficial government policies yeah. uh, based on their their knowledge of this immediate harm and, and compounded by the fact that sometimes, and I think you would agree with this, the government does bad things for good reasons, right? I mean, you could send a missile to a house where there's kids or, or there's innocent people, but there's also an evil warlord, right? And and right now we have them and we can send a Tomahawk missile and someone has to make the call about the collateral, collateral damage. Uh, and the bigger picture, it's better. Uh, but in letting this person down low make that determination is not something that we could allow. 
Well, I can understand why as a government official, you would want people to just defer to you if you think that you know better. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually pretty suspicious of the track record about with regard to collateral damage when we think they're like, oh, no, yeah, we're killing 50 kids in this one terrace, but overall, that's better. Yeah, I, I think, think they often I'm, make the mistake, but sometimes in principle, imagine a possible, In principle, it could work out like that. Work, yeah. yeah. And I would say like at that point, you know, the, the agent in question, unless they have very good reason to think that the people in charge of them know better and would know why this is justified, that they should just refuse to do it. And then they might have to share that information with that person and get them to do it. Um, I think the other principle of just defer deferring that the, to the assumption that they know better has proven itself to be way too risky and dangerous a principle with a terrible track record. Um, so, you know, in as a philosopher, I can think of situations where that would happen. I think realistically that happens very – like most of the cases that look like they're bad cases are bad cases. You know, with Snowden and, and Manning and other whistleblowers in the U.S. government um, – uh, to some degree, I punt on them because we we don't necessarily know all the facts, but everything that they um, that they leaked, and there's a question of like which of the leaks are good and which are bad. So I just say like some of the th information that they leaked, I think, was justifiable for them to leak, and some wasn't. And exactly the contours of that is something up for debate based on factual considerations. But I think it is permissible for you to um, take a government agent job as a government agent with the intention of sabotaging some of the injustice from within. It's one of the positions I defend. So uh, I think lying lying to certain people who are who are due to be lied to is okay. So if I know that like, you know, the other thing that like the Cato Institute does besides like running podcasts and publishing books and writing white papers and so on, that when that's all over, you guys are also firebombing Tuvalu. And then I, I like come work for you as an AV assistant or something. And then you say, hey, you know, like, you know, what would you, I, I could like totally lie to your faces and just say that, like, I'm going to go along with everything and then like at night sneak in here and like undermine your, uh, well, people think that population. doing that with a business, like, you know, infiltrated the cigarette companies or something to prove what they were doing. I think that Russell Crowe movie is kind of about that. Um, obviously the Nazis always are allowed. Uh, yeah. Isn't that Oscar Schindler did maintain party status, yeah. right? He and was, munition, he, he was developing munitions and then sabotaging yeah. the munitions to make sure they wouldn't work. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. everyone thinks that's heroic. So it goes back to your original question. Yeah, everyone thinks you can kill Stalin, but why not Andrew Jackson kind of? Yeah. yeah. When we had you in a while back to talk about your book Against Democracy, I think I asked a variation, a version of this question. So I'll ask it again. Given the number of people who tend to disagree with arguments that you frequently make um, and the amount of pushback you get. What do you see as maybe the most interesting um, or or most troubling counter argument to all of this? I think the I think the troubling counter argument is not an in principle philosophical argument. I think you know, I think it's like all the other stuff I just win when it comes to the philosophy. It's uh, <laughs> 23 and 1 in fist fights. 23 and 1 in fist fights and uh, eight, 87 eight to 0 no. okay. when it comes to philosophy at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, the only paper I wrote that's wrong is when I said it was wrong at the beginning. I'm just like, this is interesting, but wrong. Uh, we have a colleague who's described you as the Kanye West of philosophers. <laughs> is that a good thing? I yeah. don't know. Uh, you know, braggadocio with something to back it up. I mean, Kanye, <laughs> okay. Kanye West is good, right? right fair enough. Thanks. All right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, um, but I do think that as a person who writes for a popular, not just for a philosophical audience, but who writes and reaches a popular audience, that it is reasonable for people to worry about this getting misapplied and people using this to 
sort of like seemed like communist party member being like, all right, I read this book and he's right. I'm going to like start firebombing uh, the banks and Wall Street or something. And like every time I see a person in a, in a suit, I'm going to shoot him in order to defend against injustice. Or uh, it is true that people will use ideas like this to rationalize bad behavior. So if you say to somebody something like in response to rights violations, then you were able to do X. Then there are people who see rights violations everywhere. There are people who think that our having this discussion counts as a right violation and that it's permissible to use violence against us to stop us um so i think my worry about this book is not a philosophical one it's that it's the danger of people misapplying it but as i said before i'm even more worried about the misapplication of all the people defending the other position thanks for listening free thoughts is produced by test terrible if you enjoyed today's show please rate and review us on itunes and if you'd like to learn more about libertarianism find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org